Welcome to today's reading of the uh, Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. It is Friday, December the 29th. I'm your reader. My name is Doug Kretzinger, and our first story today is on the front page. It's entitled, The U.S. Supreme Court to Weigh in State Authority on Insurrection Clause, because the headline is, Maine Bars Trump from the Ballot. This is written by Nicholas Riccardi and David Sharp of the Associated Press. The dateline is Portland, Maine. And Maine's uh, Democratic Secretary of State on Thursday removed former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot under the Constitution's Insurrection Clause, the first election official to take action unilaterally as the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to decide whether Trump remains eligible to continue his campaign. The decision by Secretary of State Shenna Bellows follows a ruling earlier this month by the Colorado Supreme Court that booted Trump from the ballot there under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And that decision has been stayed until the U.S. Supreme Court decides whether Trump is barred by the Civil War-era provision, which prohibits those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. The Trump campaign said it would appeal Bellows' decision to Maine state courts, and Bellows suspended her ruling until that court system rules on the case. It's likely the nation's highest court will have the final say on whether Trump appears on the ballot in Maine and in other states. Bellows found Trump could no longer run for his prior job because his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol violated Section 3, which bans from office those who engaged in insurrection. She made the ruling after some state residents, including a bipartisan group of former lawmakers, challenged Trump's position on the ballot. I do not reach this conclusion lightly, Bellows wrote in her 34-page decision. I am mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I am also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection. The Trump campaign immediately slammed the ruling. We are witnessing, in real time, the attempted theft of an election and the disenfranchisement of the American voter, campaign spokesman Stephen Chung said in a statement. Legal experts said Thursday's ruling demonstrates the need for the nation's highest court, which has never ruled on Section 3, to clarify what states can do. The timing on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision is unclear. Colorado's Republican Party appealed the Colorado High Court decision on Wednesday, urging an expedited schedule, and Trump is also expected to file an appeal within the week. The petitioners in the Colorado case on Thursday urged the nation's highest court to adopt an even faster schedule so it could rule before March 5, known as Super Tuesday, when 16 states, including Colorado and Maine, are scheduled to vote in the Republican presidential nominating process. The high court needs to formally accept the case first, but legal experts consider that a certainty. While Maine has just four electoral votes, it's one of two states to split them. Trump won one of Maine's electors in 2020, so having him off the ballot there, should he emerge as the Republican general election candidate, could have outsized implications in a race that is expected to be 
narrowly decided. In her decision, Bellows acknowledged the U.S. Supreme Court will probably have the final word, but said it was important she did her official duty. That won her praise from the former state lawmakers who filed one of the petitions forcing her to consider the case. Secretary Bellows showed great courage in her ruling, and we look forward to helping her defend her judicious and correct decision in court. No elected official is above the law or our Constitution, and today's ruling reaffirms this most important of American principles. Republican Kimberly Rosen, Independent Thomas Saviello, and Democrat uh, Ethan Strimling said in a statement. Other Republicans in the state were outraged. This is a sham decision that mimics third world dictatorships, Maine's House Republican leader Billy Bob Falkingham said in a statement. It will not stand legal scrutiny. People have a right to choose their leaders devoid of minus decisions by partisan hacks. The Trump campaign on Tuesday requested that Bellows disqualify herself from the case because she'd previously tweeted that January 6th was an insurrection and bemoaned that Trump was acquitted in his impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate after the Capitol attack. She refused to step aside. My decision was based exclusively on the record presented to me at the hearing and was in no way influenced by my political affiliation or personal views about the events of January 6, 2021, Bellows told the Associated Press Thursday night. She is a former head of the main chapter of the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union. All seven of the justices of the Colorado Supreme Court, which split 4-3 on whether to become the first court in history to declare a presidential candidate ineligible under Section 3, were appointed by Democrats. Two Washington, D.C.-based liberal groups launched the most serious prior challenges to Trump in Colorado and a handful of other states. That's led Trump to contend the dozens of lawsuits nationwide seeking to remove him from the ballot under Section 3 are a Democratic plot to end his campaign. However, some of the most prominent advocates have been conservative legal theorists who argue that the text of the Constitution makes the former president ineligible to run again. Until Bellow's decision, every top state election official whether Democrat or Republican, rejected requests to bar Trump from the ballot, saying they didn't have the power to remove him unless ordered to do so by court. And since there's no local news here, I'm going to jump to the uh, story, uh, national story. It's, it's entitled, Haley Asked About Civil War and Leaves Out Slavery. It's written by Meg Kennard of the Associated Press. Columbia, South Carolina is the dateline. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley was asked by a New Hampshire voter about the reason for the Civil War, and she didn't mention slavery in her response, leading the voter to say he was astonished by her omission. Asked during a Wednesday night town hall in Berlin, New Hampshire, what she believed caused the war, the first shots of which were fired in her home state of South Carolina, Haley talked about the role of government replying that it involved the freedoms of what people could and couldn't do. Well, she then turned the question back to the man who asked it. He replied that he was not the one running for president and wished instead to know her answer. After Haley went into a lengthier explanation about the role of government, individual freedom, and capitalism, 
The questionnaire seemed to admonish Haley, saying, In the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say, uh, what, what do you want me to say about slavery? Haley retorted before abruptly moving on to the next question. But 12 hours later, Haley walked back her comments with her campaign disseminating a Thursday morning radio interview in which she said, of course the Civil War was about slavery, something she called a stain on America. She went on to reiterate that freedom matters and individual, and individual rights and liberties matter for all people. Haley, who served six years as South Carolina's governor, has been competing for a distant second place to Donald Trump for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. She has frequently said during her campaign that she would compete in the first three states before returning to the sweet state of South Carolina and will finish it in the February 24 primary. GOP presidential candidate Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign recirculated video of the original exchange on social media, adding the comment, yikes, that's in quotes. DeSantis faced criticism of his own over slavery early in the campaign when Florida enacted new education standards requiring teachers to instruct middle school students that slaves develop skills that could be applied for their personal benefit. U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, the only black Republican in the Senate and DeSantis's then-rival for the GOP presidential nomination, rejected that characterization, saying instead that slavery was about separating families, about mutilating humans, and even raping their wives. Issues surrounding the origins of the Civil War and its heritage are still much of the fabric of Haley's home state, and she has been pressed on the war's origins before. As she ran for governor in 2010, Haley, in an interview with a now-defunct activist group then known as the Palmetto Patriots, described the wars between two desperate sides fighting for tradition and change, and said the Confederate flag was not something that is racist. And during that same campaign, she dismissed the need for the flag to come down from the statehouse grounds portraying her Democratic rival's push for its removal as a political stunt. Five years later, Haley urged lawmakers to remove the flag from its peach, I'm, I'm sorry, remove its, uh, the flag from its perch near a Confederate soldier monument following a mass shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, in which a white gunman killed nine black church members who were attending Bible study. At the time, Haley said the flag was hijacked by the shooter from those who saw the flag as symbolizing sacrifice and heritage. South Carolina's Ordinance of Secession, the 1860 proclamation by the state government outlining its reasons for acceding from the Union, mentions slavery in its opening sentence and points to the increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery as a reason for the state removing itself from the Union. On Wednesday night, Cristale Spain, elected this year as the first black woman to chair South Carolina's Democratic Party, said Haley's response was, quote, vile but unsurprising. The same person who refused to take down the Confederate flag until the tragedy in Charleston and tried to justify a Confederate history month, end quote. That's what Spain, that's what Spain said of Haley 
in a post on social media. She's just as MAGA as Trump, Spain added, referring to Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. Moving over to page three, there's a picture here of the, it's called the heavy equipment is used Thursday to demolish the house where four University of Idaho students were killed in 2022 in Moscow, Idaho. And it's uh, entitled Site, Site of Student Killings Leveled. Prosecutors' Defense Already Took Evidence for an Upcoming Trial. It's written by Claire Rush and Ted Warren of the Associated Press. The dateline is Moscow, Idaho. The house where four University of Idaho students were killed last year was demolished Thursday, marking an emotional step for the victims' families and close-knit community that was shocked and devastated by the brutal stabbings. The sounds of construction equipment pierced the early morning air as an excavator started tearing down the front part of the house. The former walls formed a large pile of crushed and smashed wood on the ground as Debris was picked up and loaded into a dump truck. A few onlookers joined dozens of members of the news media. The owner of the rental home near the university campus in Moscow, Idaho, donated it to the university this year. It was since boarded up and blocked off by a security fence. Students Ethan Chapin, Axana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Conclave, Conclaves Goncalves were stabbed to death there in November of 2022. School officials who in February announced plans to raise the house viewed the demolition as a key step toward healing and finding closure, university spokesman, spokesperson Jody Walker said. It's incredibly powerful and emotional to see it come down, she said as she watched the demolition. We've turned into that next chapter, whatever the next chapter is. And that definitely is a bit of a relief. Brian Kohlberger, a former criminology graduate student at Washington State University in neighboring Pullman, Washington, is charged with four counts of murder. The concerns from victims' families previously prompted the university to push back its timeline for demolition. After initially announcing the plan in February, the school in July said it would pause the process and revisit it in October. Prosecutors who hope to try a Kohlberger next summer told university officials they don't anticipate needing the house any further as they were already able to gather measurements necessary for creating illustrative exhibits for a jury. Kohlberger's defense team was given access to the home this month to gather photos, measurements, and other documentation. In October, the FBI gathered at the house to collect data that could be used to create visual aids for jurors at the upcoming trial. Still on page three, <clears throat> January 6th rioter sentenced in secret was informant. Democrats unsealed this week, or documents unsealed this week, shed new light on shrouded case, written in the Associated Press article. A Pennsylvania man who was sentenced in secret for his role in the U.S. Capitol riot cooperated with authorities investigating the January 6, 2021 attack and unrelated case, according to court documents unsealed this week. The documents provide insight into the unusual secrecy in the case of Samuel Lazar, who had been released from federal custody in September after completing his sentence in his Capitol riot case. 
His case remained under seal even after his release. The records unsealed this week show that Lazar of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, admitted he sprayed a chemical irritant at police officers who were trying to defend the Capitol and used a bullhorn to encourage other rioters to take officers' weapons as he yelled, Let's get their guns! He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 months in prison during a sealed hearing last March. More than 1,200 people have been charged with January 6-related crimes, and hundreds of them have pleaded guilty. But it is rare for records of a guilty plea and sentence to be sealed, even in cases involving a defendant's cooperation. An attorney for Lazar declined to comment on Thursday. Next article is Lawyers Prosecuting Military Sexual Assaults. Congress pressured Pentagon to employ independent attorneys. It's another Associated Press article. Dateline is Washington. The U.S. military on Thursday opened a new chapter in how it investigates and prosecutes cases of sexual assault and other major crimes, putting independent lawyers in charge of those decisions and sidelining commanders after years of pressure from Congress. The change, long resisted by Pentagon leaders, was finally forced by frustrated members of Congress who believed that too often commanders would fail to take victims' complaints seriously or would try to protect accused perpetrators in their units. Try to protect accused perpetrators in their units. The new law was fueled by a persistent increase in sexual assaults and harassment across the military. The Air Force, the Marine Corps, and the Navy all saw reported sexual assaults go up last year, but a sharp 9% drop in reports from the Army drove the overall number down. In 2021, reported assaults spiked by 13%. Under the law, new special counsels will have the authority to make prosecution decisions on a number of major crimes. Senior officials from the military services who are familiar with the new program said they have more than... 160 special trial counsels who will take over the prosecution decisions as of Thursday. Short, a couple short uh, digest uh, headlines from the world. The world population is up by 75 million this year. Grew by 75 million over the past year, and on New Year's Day, it will stand at more than 8 billion people, according to figures released Thursday by the U.S. Census Bureau. The worldwide growth rate in the past year was just under 1%. At the start of 2024, according to the Census Bureau figures, 4.3 births and 2 deaths are expected worldwide every second. The growth rate for the United States in the past year was 0.53%, about half the worldwide figure, 0.53%, about half the worldwide figure. The U.S., added 1.7 million people and will have a population on New Year's Day of 335.8 million people. At the start of 2024, the U.S. is expected to see one birth every 9 seconds and one death every 9.5 seconds. However, immigration will keep the population from dropping. And uh, briefly on the space plane, the U.S. military's X-37B space plane blasted off Thursday on another secretive mission that's expected to last at least a couple of years. It took off aboard SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket from NASA's Kennedy Space Center over two weeks late because of technical issues. 
And more Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week, but not enough to raise concern about the labor market or broader economy. Claims rose to 218,000 for the week ending December 23, an increase of 12,000 from the prior week, the Labor Department reported Thursday. And during a key political meeting to set state objectives for 2024, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called for bolstered war readiness to repel what he said were unprecedented U.S.-led confrontational moves, state media reported Thursday. South Korea vowed a stern retaliation against provocations by the North. And let's see, a federal judge accepted new Georgia voting districts Thursday that protect Republican partisan advantages, saying new majority black voting districts solved the prior map's legal minority vote dilution. And here's one. Uh, The New York federal judge scheduled to preside over the bribery trial of U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat of New Jersey, rejected a defense request Thursday to delay the start of jury selection from May 5 and to July. Going to do some sports uh, now. I I don't see any obituaries and I don't see any um, opinions. So, CFP ends talk of a split national championship, written by Ralph D. Russo of Associated Press. The questions seem like a valid one moments after the unbeaten ACC champion Florida State was left out of the college football playoff. Could the fourth-ranked Seminoles, with a victory against defending national champion and number 6 Georgia in the Orange Bowl, be voted number 1 in the final Associated Press Top 25 college football poll? As a matter of principle, I'd consider ranking Florida State number one regardless of whether they are in the CFP field, said ESPN's Reese Davis, a longtime AP Top 25 voter. Much like the selection process itself, the exercise is who, in my judgment, is the best team. In reality, though, the current state of college football's postseason all but renders the conversation moot. Between players transferring or opting out to concentrate on NFL draft preparations and coaching staffs turned upside down by hirings and firings, the better question these days is how much consideration should poll voters give to postseason games outside the CFP at all? This is my 14th time as an AP voter, and I definitely think I will be less likely to vote teams considerably up or down after the bowls that I did than I did in the past, said Scott Rebellius of the Advocate of Baton Baton Rouge, Louisiana. On Saturday at the Orange Bowl, Florida State will be a shell of the team that won the Atlantic Coast Conference Championship. Quarterback Jordan Travis is still uh, recovering from a broken leg, an injury that essentially kept the Seminoles out of the playoff. Many of FSU's best players, including defensive end Jared Verse, Running back Trey Johnson and receiver Keon Coleman have opted out as they look toward the NFL draft. Earlier this week, number two quarterback Tate Roadmaker chose to transfer and skip the game. Some of the Seminoles who will play weren't shy about saying they should be number one if they finish as the only unbeaten Power 5 team. It's only right, linebacker Kellen Deloach told reporters at the Orange Bowl, Nothing else needs to be said if we're the only undefeated team. The Seminoles will face a Georgia team in much better shape. 
19 Bulldogs hit the transfer portal after the season, though most were backup players. It does look as if all America tight end Brock Bowers and highly regarded tackle Amarius Mims will miss the game after seasons interrupted by injuries. If Florida State handles Georgia easily and the three CFP games are duds, then I'd gladly vote the Seminoles number one, but it's not going to happen, said AP Top 25 voter Robert Cessna of the Bryan College Station, Texas Eagle. The last time there was a split national title was 2003, when Southern California was voted number one by AP after being left of of the BCS title game, won by LSU over Oklahoma. The four-team playoff has all been ensured. It will never happen again. And uh, you can catch uh, college football bowl game action today with the Clemson versus Kentucky in the Tax Slayer Gator Bowl on ESPN, Oregon State versus Notre Dame in the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl on CBS, Memphis versus Iowa State in the Eras AutoZone Liberty Bowl, ESPN, and Missouri versus Ohio State in the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic on ESP, ESPN. Here are a couple things that happened on this date a long time ago. Uh, In 1890, the Wounded Knee Massacre took place in South Dakota as an estimated 300 Sioux Indians were killed by U.S. troops sent to disarm them. And in 1940, during World War II, Germany dropped incendiary bombs on London, setting off what came to be known as the Second Great Fire of London. 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight uh, 401, a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar crashed into the Florida Everglades near Miami International Airport, killing 101 of the 176 people aboard. In 1978, during the Gator Bowl, Ohio State coach Woody Hayes punched Clemson player Charlie Bauman, who'd intercepted an Ohio State pass. Hayes was fired the next day. And in 1992, the United States and Russia announced agreement on a nuclear arms reduction treaty. 2016, the United States struck back at Russia for hacking the U.S. presidential campaign with a sweeping set of punishments targeting Russia's spy agencies and diplomats. And one more here in 2021, British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted in New York of helping lure teenage girls to be sexually abused by the late Jeffrey Epstein. The verdict capped a month-long trial featuring accounts of the sexual exploitation of girls as young as 14. Max Fetwell would be sentenced to 20 years in prison. Associated Press, the articles written by them. Here's a look at the Mason City five-day forecast. Today, uh, sunshine, going to be wind at about 7 to 14 miles per hour, 41 degrees, the high. And tonight... Clear, wind stays at 7 to 14 miles per hour, 25 degrees. Saturday, partly sunny, winds about the same, 8 to 16, 38 and 22, the temperatures. Sunday, uh, cloudy, breezy and colder, wind northwest 12 to 25, 31 degrees to 16, 16 the low. Monday, windy, sunny, mostly sunny and windy on Tuesday, so weather uh, looking fairly decent there. And you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. 
I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call, 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger. Okay, Friday, December 29, it's uh, Fort Dodge Messenger time. And a top story, big headline, Harvest at 94. I'm going to read that. It's right on the front page. Ross Hartwig of Rockville City maintains lifelong work ethic, written by Darcy McDoherty, Malsby. There's a saying that each of us has about 40 chances to accomplish our goals in life. Howard Buffett, Warren Buffett's son, said he learned this through agriculture because all farmers can expect to have about 40 growing seasons, giving them just 40 chances to improve on every harvest. While he must not know, 94-year-old Ross Hartwig of Rockwell City, and there is a picture of him right here on the front page in front of his uh, red combine, Case International Combine. This fall, Hartwig was hard at work in Calhoun County combining soybeans in a field northeast of Lake City with his son Rex, 64, and daughter-in-law Shelley. If Ross can't work, he's not happy, said Shelley Hartwig, who ran the tractor and catch wagon. While most farmers might get 40 growing and harvesting seasons, at least according to Buffett, Hartwig's goal total is well over 70. It gets a little tougher each year for Hartwig to climb up into his Case International Combine, but he's always ready for another day of harvesting soybeans after he's enjoyed a good hearty breakfast at the local Sparky's convenience store, of course. While his combine is nearly 30 years old, Hartwig has no interest in driving more modern machine with the latest computer technology, too many bells and whistles for his taste. His cell phone is enough, is enough technology for him. So while drought conditions have gripped Calhoun County for several years now, Hartwig was pleased that his family's soybeans were yielding in the 50s and 60s this fall. No matter how many birthdays he celebrates, Hartwig is always interested in how the crops are doing, and he likes to be involved in the farm. For someone as active as Hartwig, it helps that longevity runs in his family. Ross's mother, Ella, was almost 98 years old when she passed, Shelley Hartwig noted. Putting in a full day's work, Hartwig learned early on the value of work. His father, Fred, farmed, and his mother tended a large garden, raised fruit trees, and canned countless jars of food to help feed the family. Hartwig graduated from Rockwell City High School in 1947 and served in the U.S. Air Force for two years before returning to Calhoun County to farm. After marrying his wife, Dolores, in 1952, the couple raised their children, including sons Rex and Craig, on a farm in Sherman Township. Even after Ross and Dolores moved to Rockwell City in 2012, Ross uh, stayed connected to the farm. Both Ross and Dolores, who passed away in 2015, passed along their love of agriculture to their children, three grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren. Their granddaughter Tanya and her husband, Clayton Reynolds, farm near Yetter, where they are raising their own family. The Hartwigs are happy to give Ross a helping hand at harvest. The boys clean the combine and grease it, said Shelley Hartwig, uh, who married Rex in 1978. Also, Ross only combines beans. A man of few words, Ross doesn't mess around when it's go time. 
He put in a full day's work every day during the 2023 soybean harvest, just like he has for decades. My sign that the work day is almost my sign that the work day is almost done when the lights come on, he said as he made one more round. While no one knows what the future will bring, one thing is certain, Shelley Hartwig said. Hard working is a way to describe the Hartwigs and especially Ross. Iowa community colleges see increased enrollment amid national challenges. This is written by Brooklyn Brazy, Iowa Capital uh, Drazy, Iowa Capital Dispatch. Iowa's community colleges are seeing returns on recruiting efforts and partnerships with schools and businesses in the form of rising enrollment in 2023. Enrollment in community colleges grew by 3.8% from last year, according to the Iowa Department of Education 2023 Fall Enrollment Report, with a total of 85,362 students spread across the state. Part-time student numbers reached an all-time high, making up two-thirds of total enrollment. While enrollment isn't back to where it was before the COVID-19 pandemic began, with more than 88,000 students attending community colleges in 2019, the report stated this is the second year of increased enrollment in the state. I think that despite challenges facing higher education nationally, we're faring well, Community Colleges for Iowa Executive Director Emily Shields said. Out of the state's 15 community colleges, Nine saw increased enrollment. Des Moines Area Community College saw the highest number of enrolled students at 24,418 and the largest over-year increase of almost 13%. Indian Hills Community College saw the largest decrease in enrollment, dropping by 3.7% to 3,236 students. Iowa falls behind the national average with its enrollment trends, according to the report. National enrollment in two-year institutions increased by 4.4%, helped by a 9% increase in part-time students. In Iowa, part-time student enrollment increased by 0.8%. Full-time enrollment also dropped in both Iowa and across the country, with the state reporting a 0.8% decrease and the U.S. seeing a 0.2% drop. Joint enrollment in which students are simultaneously taking high school and college credit classes increased in Iowa by 7.9%, while the national average increased by 8.8%. Shields said she doesn't like to compare the state and national numbers with joint enrollment, as she believes Iowa has been ahead of other states with tapping that market and has already seen major growth. The biggest issue for year the biggest issue four-year universities and college communities, colleges alike, are up against a predicted drops in enrollment, Shields said, and it is a two-pronged problem. First factor is that there will be fewer students graduating high school in the coming years, making the pool of applicants to colleges smaller. The other challenge is that fewer high school graduates are choosing to seek any post-secondary education despite the majority of careers requiring a certification or degree of some kind. We're facing a lot of pressures that are kind of driving down enrollment nationally that we're trying to address uh, locally in different ways, but they are making it more challenging to to kind of keep enrollment where it needs to be and keep college affordable and continue to attract students, Shields said. Efforts on the national level to expand financial aid for certain programs could help bolster enrollment in certification and other non-degree training programs. 
Shields said. The Bipartisan Workforce Pell Act, which has passed out of the U.S. House Education Workforce Committee, would extend Pell Grant eligibility to some short-term workforce programs like those implemented by Iowa's community colleges. With the looming enrollment cliff and fewer students interested in pursuing an education after high school, community colleges for Iowa and the institutions it works with are trying to spread recruiting, uh, recruitment programs to a variety of areas. Shields said community colleges don't have the luxury of trying to get to target specific types of students, whether they be just out of high school or working adults, and thus are using career and college transition counselors embedded in high schools and partnerships with businesses to try and reach traditional and non-traditional students. Judging by the 7.9% increase in joint enrollment and 3.1% jump in Iowa career and technical education enrollment, Shields and these strides said these strides seem to be paying off. I think that really reflects where we've made a lot of efforts to align with the state's workforce to partner even more with high schools and just to offer lots of different options for Iowans to start and continue their education, Shield said. Here's a brief uh, local story. Smoky Fire Damages Division Street Shed by Jane Curtis, who wrote it. Webster City Fire responded to a smoky blaze. The Webster City Fire responded to a smoky blaze in a detached shed behind a house at 526 Division Street in Webster City around 1 o'clock Thursday afternoon. A man working in the shed said he had started a fire in a wood burner but then had gone into the house for a refreshment, learned later that the shed was burning. He did not identify himself. The property is owned by Tammy Sue Johnson, according to online property records. Once the fire was under control, firefighters ventilated the structure. Fire Chief Chuck Stansfield said no one was injured. Cause of the fire is undetermined, he said. A couple stories from page 5. Fort Dodge man arrested for burglary, theft of a dog by Kelly Wingert. Fort Dodge man is facing burglary and theft charges after allegedly dog-napping someone's pup on Wednesday. According to court records, Daniel Martin, 40, entered an apartment in the 1300 block of 2nd Avenue North and threatened to kill the resident's dog at about 9.15 a.m. Wednesday. He then took the dog and and left the property. Martin was later arrested and charged with second-degree burglary, Class C felony, and fifth-degree theft, simple misdemeanor. He had his initial appearance in Webster County Magistrate Court on Thursday. Preliminary hearing is is scheduled for January 5. Martin remains in custody on a $10,000 cash-only bond. Martin is also facing charge of third-degree harassment for an unrelated incident. Realize earlier I told you folks there was no local news. I've run into a couple stories here, so I'm sorry about that, but we'll get them in. Fort Dodge couple charged with neglecting two dogs, written by Kelly Wingert. And Fort Dodge couple facing animal neglect charges after two of their dogs were allegedly found abandoned and malnourished, with one of the dogs needing a leg amputated. According to court records, Jason Brigham, 30, and Natasha Smith, 26, were both charged with animal neglect with serious injury or death and aggravated misdemeanor. The defendants didn't provide food to the dogs and abused the dogs, according to the criminal complaint. One of the dogs had a fractured bone in its back leg and needed an amputation. And the alleged crime happened sometime between September 20 and October 13. Uh, Brigham and Smith had their initial appearances in Webster County Magistrate Court. On Thursday, Smith waived a preliminary hearing while Brigham's 
preliminary hearing is scheduled for January 17 of 2024. Both defendants were released on their own recognizance and by court order cannot own any dogs until their cases are resolved. There are some obituaries in today's paper. Rosalie Ernesse, E-E-R-N-I-S-S-E, age 80, passed away on Tuesday the 26th. She brought joy to the world from the moment she was born in Waverly, Iowa. On February 4 of 1943, to her parents Otto and Olga Bohme, B-O-E-H-M-E, she graduated from Eagle Grove High School, where she made friendships that would last a lifetime. Rose married Harvey, her beloved husband and partner in crime, on August 20th, 1966. Together they made their home in Fort Dodge, where they loved living for over 50 years. Rose's sense of humor and love of life made every day a new adventure. She was never one to be bored or found boring. She sailed the Caribbean, went to skydiving, and always lived life to the fullest. Rose had a magnetic personality and unforgettable laugh. She was always authentic and unique. Rose absolutely loved her dog, Sugar, spending their time driving around town and calling out, Here, dear! Here, dear! At the end of the day, Rose enjoyed a seven-and-seven just a dab with a gob of ice. She is lovingly remembered by her children, Jim, spouse Jody Ernesty, and Pam Ernesty, spouse Brent Smith, along with her cherished grandchildren, Jacob, Elliot, Danny, Landon, and Addie Ernesty. Rosalie was preceded in death by her parents, Otto and Olga Bohme, B-O-E-H-M-E, her sister Darlene, and her husband Harvey. Service to celebrate Rosie's life will be held on Saturday, December 30th, 12.30 p.m. at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Celebration of life will follow the service. Flowers and memorials are welcomed and may be sent to Rosie's home or to Good Shepherd Church. Rosalie Ann Ernesty's legacy of laughter, love, and authenticity will forever be cherished in the hearts of those she touched. Carla Wetzel, 56, passed away December 27th. Prayer service will be 6 p.m. January 9th. Lofsweiler Funeral Home. Bub Wallace Bradgate. Eugene Bub Wallace, 70, passed away uh, December 25. Memorial Gathering Saturday, December 30th, 1 to 4 p.m. Bradgate Community Center. Larry Larry Harris, Fort Dodge. Memorial service will be 1 p.m. on Saturday, December 30th at Lighthouse uh, Ministries, 1333 4th Avenue, North Bruce's Funeral Home. Veronica Averill. 86 Fort Dodge passed away on Thursday, December 28. Trinity Regional Medical Center. Services are pending. Lofsweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Mary Lanning of Rutland passed away December 26. Funeral will be 10 a.m. Saturday, St. Mary's Church, Humboldt. Visitation be 4 to 6 Friday at Mason Lindhart Funeral Home. Janet Block, Humboldt. Private family services will be held at a later date. Memorial services may be directed to the family. Arrangements are with historic Bruce Funeral Home of Fort Dodge, Fort Dodge BruceSFuneralHome.com. Annette Wurr, W-U-R-R, Auburn, Iowa, 86. Mass will be 10.30 a.m. Friday at St. Mary Catholic, Auburn, Iowa. Burial Cottonwood Cemetery in Lake City. Visitation 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday. Lamp and Flowers Funeral uh, Home in Lake City. And um, Eileen Stoll, Stolil, S-T-O-U-L-I-L, Pocahontas. Eileen B. Stowhill, age 89, of Pocahontas, passed away on Wednesday, December 27, her home in Pocahontas. Funeral service is 10.30 a.m. 
Wednesday, January 3, at Resurrection of Our Lord Catholic Church in Pocahontas, with Father Paul Yejin and Monsignor Michael Cernet officiating. Burial will take place at Calvary Cemetery in Pocahontas. Visitation from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 3, at the church. Powers Funeral Home of Pocahontas is handling the arrangements. And so, and here's one for Barbara Goebel, G-O-E-B-E-L, Fort Dodge, 82, Barbara Ann of Fort Dodge, passed away on Saturday, December 23rd. The Paul, at Paul J. Baber Hospice House in Fort Dodge, Memorial Mass will be held at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, the 3rd of January at the chapel at Holy Trinity Catholic Church with Monsignor Kevin McCoy officiating. A private family burial will be held at Corpus Christi Cemetery. Arrangements have been entrusted with Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Barb is survived by her son John, grandchildren Allison, Jessica, Jean, Ronnie, and Matthew. Her siblings are Bruce and Janet. She was preceded in death by her husband Glenn, son Michael, and daughter Lee. Memorials may be left to Almost Home Humane Society of North Central Iowa or Holy Trinity Catholic Church. And Gail Olson, uh, 65, formerly of Fort Dodge, passed away Monday, December 18. Uh, Acura Healthcare of Shenandoah. Funeral services will be 1 p.m. Wednesday at uh, January 3 at Lostwater Funeral Home. And burial will follow at St. Olaf uh, Cemetery. Visitation will be one hour prior at the funeral home. Gail was born May 28, 1958 in Fort Dodge. She is a graduate of Fort Dodge Senior High School. Gail worked at the Salvation Army Kitchen in Fort Dodge and helped several years with the annual bell ringing campaign. With LifeWorks, she worked at Friendship uh, Haven and Starlight in Housekeeping. She was a confirmed member of Grace Lutheran Church, active in the church, helping with the Bible school. She also delivered the messenger for 15 years. She is preceded in death by her parents, Kenneth and Rosetta Mathwig Olson of Fort Dodge and her brother, Dale Olson, and his wife, Jan Rader of Griffin, Georgia. Memorials may be left to Mosaic of Western Iowa or Acura Healthcare of Shenandoah, Iowa. Here's an article from the sports uh, section um, written by Chris Johnson. Ex-Southeast Valley Starfisher gains trust of staff. It's a former Southeast Valley All-Star Kyler Fisher of Iowa talks to Hawkeye head coach Kurt Francis in the picture during a game earlier this season. Dateline is Iowa City. Kyler Fisher knew what he wanted, and he wasn't going to let anything stop him. Fisher's dream was to be a Division I football player. Whatever path it took for the former Southeast Valley star to get there, he was ready to follow. Fisher was the cream of the crop with the Jaguars, a three-time state wrestling runner-up, the school's all-time leading rusher, and all-time score in football. Fisher could have easily played at a lower-level program, but his personal goal was always to compose, rather compete, among the very best. When I was nearing the end of my high school career, it was a little scary not knowing where or what I was going to do, Fisher said. Honestly, I had such high expectations for myself coming out of high school that regardless of the program, I would have accepted any Division I school that offered me, that offered me. Iowa was the only one to do that, so I was pretty lucky because I could have easily gone somewhere else solely on the fact that they were Division I. Then I wouldn't have achieved nearly as much as I have at Iowa, both on and off the field. Fisher's trek took relentless work, perseverance, and the journey began. 
Nick became an impact receiver almost immediately. Here we go. I'm sorry. Determination. Once he made his uh, decision to become a preferred walk-on at Iowa, it was set in stone. He was a Hawkeye and would be until graduation. I think the essence of walk-ons are people who set high expectations for themselves, Fisher said. Even accepting a walk-on position, knowing you have to pay for your own school and basically could work your way up, shows you're ready to fight against the odds and bet on yourself. That takes a gritty individual. I was lucky enough to have uh, like-minded individuals who were perfect role models within the program. They showed me exactly what that investment into yourself can look like as a walk-on and what it can result in. Hopefully, over the course of my career, I've done the same for other players. Once Fisher started narrowing his decisions, it became clear that Iowa City was the destination that fit. I noticed that the coaches at Iowa cared about who I was as a person and the goals that I wanted to achieve lined up here, Fisher said. They were honest with me throughout the recruiting process and didn't just feed me fake words, which was different than a lot of other schools. The perseverance paid off as Fisher earned a scholarship and became a starter for the Hawkeyes in his final season. The advice that I would give people making the decision on where to play is to choose a place that aligns with your goals and is honest with you, regardless of the level, Fisher said. At the end of the day, you'll improve the most as a football player and a man with a school that does both. The journey has landed Fisher in his fourth bowl game, as the Hawkeyes will face Tennessee in the Cheez-It Christmas Bowl on Monday. My career at Iowa has been special. It's taught me a lot about perspective, adversity, how to achieve goals, and strive for greatness, Fisher said. Looking back, I'm really glad that I took the risk of choosing Iowa as my home. Fisher has climbed the ladder every season. He played on special teams for all 11 games during the sophomore year and earned the Team Hustle Award. As a junior, Fisher was one of six juniors named to the Hawkeye Players Council, an honor he would uh, also solidify as a senior. Fisher was honored with the Brett Greenwood Award and Coaches Appreciation Award for special teams in 2023. When I eventually got put on scholarship, I was glad that my hard work had been noticed, Fisher said. It made me realize I had reached the level that the guys who I looked up to had reached, which made me really proud of myself. Fisher has always been anchored by a close-knit family. They support everything I do, Fisher said. They have shown up to almost every game I've played in. It's always nice to spend time with them because before and after the bowl games, since there isn't time to do that during the regular season. And here's a story on the Cyclones who look to finish in style. It says, ISU faces homestanding Memphis in Liberty Bowl, written by Teresa Walker, Associated Press. The Memphis Tigers have a rare luxury chasing program history with all the comforts of home Friday against Iowa State and the Liberty Bowl. The Cyclones, 7-5, will work from Memphis Usual sideline pushing the Tigers to the visitor's side. Memphis will get to use its own locker room. I think that game's at 2.30 today. At stake for Memphis, 9-3 is posting just the fifth season in program history with at least 10 victories and four since 2014. The Tigers also can get some payback for 2017 when they lost this bowl to Iowa State by a single point despite being ranked. Coach Ryan Silverfield said Thursday, that his Tigers understand both the history of this bowl, sponsored by AutoZone, and what it means to Memphis. National television, and then also the opportunity to go down in history as one of 
the top five winningest teams in program history, Silverfield said. Those are huge things that are at stake, and our guys will certainly come out swinging. That 2017 Liberty Bowl is the only game Iowa State has won in the state of Tennessee in six tries. This marks Iowa State's sixth bowl with Coach Matt Campbell and possibly and possibly the most impressive after five projected starters were sidelined by an investigation into illegal gambling. Quarterback Hunter Deckers was among three Cyclones who pleaded guilty to underage gambling. Campbell called what happened to his Cyclones this season nothing short of incredible. The guys that have stood up and played meaningful snaps and the stories that I think will come out of this season and the ability to be ready for when their number was called. Campbell said, I just think that, to me, has been what's been most remarkable about this season. And again, they play today at uh, 2.30. One more short article. Fort Dodge, uh, a Frontier Opera House, One Museum Road, is holding a New Year's Eve dance featuring Richie Lee and the fabulous 50s from 7 p.m. to midnight Sunday. Tickets are $25 per person or reserve a table for eight for $150. Ticket includes... Hors d'oeuvres, snacks, and a midnight champagne toast. Tickets are available at the Fort Museum Trading Post, Dungeons and Dodgers, at 1018 Central Avenue, and Fort Dodge Coin and Stamp, 615 Central Avenue. Around the area, by the way, Emmitsburg Public Library Emmitsburg is holding 5th through the 12th grade DIY touchscreen gloves and the ice cream at 2 p.m. today at the library. And come work on your sewing skills and make your own gloves made just for touchscreen phones. Ice cream and toppings will be served for all participants. Claire Community Center is holding a New Year's Eve dance from 9 p.m. to midnight Sunday. DJ Dan will be playing classic rock and roll. Party favors will be included and a free will offering will be accepted. Bring your own beverage, pop, and water will be available for purchase. And finally, a first day hike is... Lehigh. First day hike is 9 a.m. Monday at Dolliver Memorial State Park, 2757 Dolliver Park Avenue in Lehigh. Meet at the Center Lodge parking lot. Hike along the river trail and enjoy some river winter views of Dolliver State Park. The hike is easy to moderate and you should be dressed for the weather. That makes a lot of sense. Dress for the weather. Don't know what it's going to be. Well, That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger and earlier the Mason City Globe Gazette. I've been your reader, Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and I hope you have a happy new year.
Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.